conviction of Brennan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. five years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. be allowed to lie to children and teens during interrogations starting on January 1st. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill into law today making Illinois the first state in the country to ban the deceptive tactic. WGEM's Capitol Bureau Chief Mike Militich is live in Springfield tonight with reaction to this change. Mike. Mackenzie, good evening. This may seem like common sense legislation to many, but there are still many teens left behind bars due to this police tactic that's been used for decades. Governor J.B. Pritzker says this law should be an example for the entire country. This is a moment when we get to mark truly uh, one of the most joyous and important accomplishments for a fair and safe criminal justice system. Terrell Swift was one of four black teens framed for murder and rape by Chicago police in 1995. He was 17 when officers brought him in for questioning, even though he knew nothing about that crime. Swift spent over 15 years in prison before he was exonerated. We still have so much work to do because there are so many brothers and sisters still there now, wrongfully. And we can all... Hey, Brendan, we've got some food up here. Sandwich or anything? You want something? Bathroom. Just a soda. Would you like to have a sandwich or anything? Drink? Anything? Bag of chips? Need to go to the bathroom? No, okay. Bathroom, Brendan? No. Okay, donut? In fact, the investigators mention having a sandwich nine times during the March 1st interrogation. But this was not out of concern for Brendan's well-being. This was an orchestrated ticking the boxes exercise. 
that would result in Judge Hamilton's opinion for the en banc majority, stating, well, Brendan had access to food, drinks and restroom breaks. And he cited these as factors supporting his findings that Brendan's confession was voluntary. A child's life is on the line, but hey, he got a donut and was permitted to use the bathroom. So coercion, contamination and fact-feeding be damned. Now, widely used interrogation techniques are steeped in deception detection. The notion that investigators are human lie detectors is all based on earlier theories that those who lie will exhibit stress-based cues because they fear being caught. This notion mobilised researchers to search for reliable behavioural indicators of deception. Imagine behaviours such as posture shifts, gaze aversion, word selection such as I don't know, pointing to your guilt. It's ridiculous, right? And greater minds than mine think so. But there really is no Pinocchio's nose in behavioural analysis. If only Judge Hamilton's understanding of interrogations and false confessions were not grounded in the Jurassic Age. However, thankfully, the smell of reform is beginning to permeate the air of Senate chambers across the United States. Now, this episode was recorded a few weeks back, and we discussed the passing of Senate Bill 2122 in Illinois, a bipartisan-sponsored bill that will help protect children who flow through the Illinois criminal justice system from tactics designed to inculpate that heighten the risk of false confessions. This week, Governor Pritzker signed this historic legislation into law, making Illinois the first state to ban law enforcement officers from using deception while interrogating juveniles, more specifically people under the age of 18. One of my guests today, Dave Thompson, president of Wicklander Zalowski, consulted on this bill, as did the Centre on Wrongful Convictions co-director and Brendan's lead attorney, Laura Narida. Laura said, I have spent my career representing children and teenagers who falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit, including 16-year-old Brendan Dassey. This law is the first of its kind in the country that is directly targeted at reducing the likelihood of future false confessions so that we don't have more Brendan Dasseys. But onwards to other states now. There are a lot of kids who need this protection, even if they don't know it yet. We know that it is well within the law for police to use a variety of psychological techniques to induce suspects to confess, including lying to suspects about evidence and accusatory questioning, stomping a pair of size 10s up the nine steps of the read technique because, well, that's what they've been taught. My guests today are providing alternative modern interrogation practices grounded in science and rooted in humanity. What a revolution, right, for the US system of justice. You know, Reed concedes that their technique has led to false confessions. Particularly when it comes to kids, that's just unacceptable. Actually, it's unacceptable full stop. So joining me is Dave Thompson, partner and president of Wiklander Zalowski, a world-leading interrogation training organisation who have been instrumental in supporting Brendan's fight through the federal court system. Matt Jones, the director and lead instructor at Evocavi. A detective Matt has co-developed through his work on science-based interviewing and interrogation, a week-long science-based training program developed specifically for law enforcement. 
and former homicide detective who now reviews, consults, trains and instructs on wrongful conviction cases, specialising in the field of false confessions, James Trainham. What a roundtable. The conversation continues. episode I'm joined by Dave Thompson, the president of Wicklander Zalowski and Associates, a leading consulting and training company on interview and interrogation techniques, who were party to amicus briefs in support of Brendan's federal appeals. Detective Matt Jones, director and lead instructor at Evercarvey, who in 2019, in conjunction with prominent research experts, co-developed a week-long science-based interview training program designed specifically for law enforcement and James Trainham, who we got to know in a previous episode of The Sixth Hour. James is a private consultant and retired detective who has dedicated himself to criminal case review, consulting, review of wrongful conviction cases, specialising in the field of false confessions. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. Well, thank you for having me, at least Jim here. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fitting to start a discussion on interrogations with a win for reform. Congratulations, Dave, on the bill passing. Can you tell us about the reform that's ready to be signed into law by Governor Pritzker and what this means for the interrogations of juveniles in Illinois? Yeah, we're, we're very excited. I'm sure it shares with, with Matt and Jim the same, same sentiment. But in Illinois, we're a little bit further ahead, but we've also got New York and Oregon, some pending legislation. And right now in, in Illinois, we passed through the Senate and the House of Representatives and bipartisan support, which is which is pretty fascinating, to ban the practice of lying to youths, so anybody under the age of 18, in an interrogation. And I know that for a lot of listeners probably seems crazy that we even needed a law to, to prohibit that. Uh, but the United States is one of the very few countries that actually allows law enforcement to present fake evidence or lie about consequences during an interrogation. So this law will be the first of its kind and right now, specific to juveniles, it's expected to uh, to become enacted in the very near future as it just passed through through the legislature. So we were excited to, to testify in support of it and work with the Innocence Project and um, get support from the law enforcement community. So definitely a step in the right direction. We're, we're pretty excited. It's brilliant news. And, and hopefully it's something that's adopted by all states. Well, I was just going to say that that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when we have any kind of reform, any kind of uh, advancement in law enforcement techniques, we have to go from state to state, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction to convince each and every you know, agency, a legislature and all that separately that this is a good thing. And typically we are met with opposition you know, throughout the entire process, just like videotaping. It's kind of a most people assume that we're videotaping interrogations from start to finish. But that is a process that's taken decades to get large number of agencies to even do that in some cases, and it's still an ongoing process. So it's not easy. 
you know, I think law enforcement is very conservative. In fact, I'm sure, you know, Dave, you haven't have encountered this with uh, with that bill there. But there's so many in law enforcement who are going to say that, oh, now we'll never be able to get any confessions because we're not allowed to lie because it was just part of our process for so many years. But they said the same thing about Miranda. They said the same thing about videotaping. <laughs> so this is just part of the grieving process. I think that law enforcement has to go through when they uh, encounter this sort of a, a reform issue. Yeah, absolutely. If we can start the conversation by me inviting each of you to introduce yourself and share with listeners a little bit about your backgrounds and, and what's brought you to be where you are today. So I'll throw that open. Go ahead, Jim. Oh, me? Oh. <laughs> well, my background is a little bit different from uh, Matt and Dave's in that they're both um, involved in the teaching of interrogation techniques. And it's going to be an interrogation stuff, mostly to law enforcement. I kind of got into this field by accident, basically, by getting a false confession myself uh, as an active detective in D.C. back in 1994. And once I realized what I had done, I wanted to find out more about what I did that, that created that situation and how the woman who gave the confession actually knew all the details about the crime that she should not have known. And so I began going online and just looking up the academic research and realizing that the mistakes that I made are fairly common in the practice of interrogation. And so I never was in the position where I could like do large scale instructions and all that like these guys can. But what I did was I tried to create a mini program. I recognized that the interrogation practices that are used widely throughout this country are not going to be changing in the near, you know, at least in my lifetime for a lot of places. So, so these guys are doing a lot to see that that happens quicker. But uh, I figured that I would try to teach people or help them learn from my mistakes and kind of like a stopgap measure into, uh, okay, if you're going to use these techniques, these are the things you have to look out for. And I took that and I also used that experience in uh, reviewing the alleged wrongful conviction cases for the Innocence Project. So I do a lot of consulting, not only teaching, but consulting on those cases in that area as well. Matt, if you'd like to share your, your background with us. Sure. So uh, my name is Matt Jones, and I'm a detective for a police department out on the on the West Coast here. and, and I've been working in law enforcement now for about 21 years. It wasn't until around 2012, 2013 that I started to look into what we were teaching in terms of curriculums all across the country and interviewing interrogation techniques. And what I found, unfortunately, at the time is that there were no training curriculums that were being offered to local law enforcement that had been validated out in the field or empirically tested to show that they were effective. And from that moment, I started to work with the researchers and explore more how we could develop a curriculum for local law enforcement. And, and not only develop a curriculum, but also to, to teach the curriculum in a way that involved both the practitioner and the researchers teaching together 
uh, to introduce law enforcement more to the research and get them acclimated to what was really out there and not what was just being presented by practitioner-led programs. And, and that's kind of what brought me to where I'm at today in, in teaching these programs to local, state, and uh, federal agencies right now. Mm-hmm. And Dave? Yeah, I mean, sim- similar to Matt, I, my experience is not as extensive as Matt is in the public sector. I, I worked a majority of my career was in uh, both, both private sector and I spent some time with New York State Police. And the last several years I've been with Wicklander Zalowski. And as you mentioned earlier, we're, we are a training organization and we also teach interview and interrogation techniques. And uh, the company's been around since 1982. But in the most recent of years is when we've really, kind of what Matt's speaking to, really started to embrace academic research, the overwhelming evidence of wrongful convictions, um, and partner with advocacy groups to try to challenge what what is being taught to investigators, and is it being taught just because it's always been done a certain way, or has it actually been empirically tested? And so uh, I think similar to Matt, is it's trying to embrace or, or be the kind of the, the viaduct between academic research and practitioner application and making sure those two sides communicate to each other. Mm-hmm. You're all involved in the development, reformation and practice of alternative interrogation methods. Can I ask each of you what has compelled you to deviate from practices such as the Reed method to the methods that you've developed, instruct and champion now? I'll, I can speak real quick. So now, Tracy, you mentioned this earlier, but from a personal standpoint, my grandfather was a judge. And so I always kind of grew up learning that there's two sides to every every story. And judgment between the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law was always interesting to me. And it always terrified me that it seemed like a, a case was won by a jury just deciding which attorney they liked better versus by a preponderance of the evidence. So I, I always kind of had this perspective of two sides of a story. But the Really, the tipping point for me was Brendan Dassey's case, which you mentioned mentioned earlier. That's a case that you know we got involved in to support on a couple um, amicus briefs and really got to know what's going on day to day in some of these interrogation rooms and realizing that the lives that are impacted negatively, both the actual victim and then you know supplemental victims from wrongful convictions, and and that we have a platform to change that. So that really kind of inspired me and, and our company to to move forward. Yeah. Matt, yourself? Uh, you know, for me, the, the tipping point really was when I started to consider about what I wanted to leave behind when I retired from law enforcement. And, and I wanted to, to try to change the culture with the interview curriculums that were out there in the country and, and especially change the perception about the research that was you know, pushing forward all these ethical and effective techniques that we're not getting any recognition within the law enforcement community. And that's really what's been driving this is to get people to, to look at what the research actually says about what, what are our diagnostic techniques that we know have been validated out in the field that actually work compared to what we've been teaching for the last 80 years. And, and that's really what's been pushing this. Yeah, yeah. And James? Oh, yeah. Besides my own experience, when I started looking at what other places were doing, other countries were doing in reference to interview and interrogation. I also noticed not only were they using methods that made more sense, that weren't guilt presumptive, that were designed to obtain 
investigative information rather than confirmation of a detective's theory, that they would not only help to increase the quality of the investigation, but the approach that the these agencies had was we're out there to our main goal is respect. We're going to go in there. We're going to treat the suspect, no matter how heinous the crime, with respect, with dignity, because one, we don't know for sure whether or not they, they committed that crime. And two, it's just better for the community. I mean, and so when I, I saw that, that they were teaching that this is a matter of respecting the community, respecting the suspect. And that spills over into a mutual respect for the police, where the techniques that I see that we use, I mean, you, we're allowed to lie to people. Uh, that really doesn't foster a good community relationship. The fact that we're tricking people into telling us things that they really don't want to tell us. And in fact, one of the leading, well, the Reed technique, uh, the Reed people in their textbook, they talk about how it's necessary. Well, first off, they do admit that the techniques that they teach in a normal uh, setting would be considered unethical. But they justify the use of these unethical techniques by saying that you were dealing with people on a lower moral plane than the average person. And to me, that's just the wrong way to go into any investigation to think about people that way, to treat people that way. And I think that that's had a long-term effect on the uh, community's relationship with law enforcement. Absolutely, absolutely. In terms of the interrogation and interview methods that yourself, Dave, and Matt, that you've developed and teach, can you share a little bit about how they do differ from, say, the Reed technique in its approach? Yeah, I'm sure we, we probably have a lot of parallels here as we're, as we're going to discuss this. So I'll just mention a couple and yeah. let Matt pick up from there. But um, I think one that Jim just mentioned is the presumption of guilt is something that often happens because of misclassification. And misclassification is something where we have to determine why did the wrong person get put in the interrogation room in the first place? Was it because of faulty forensic science, whatever it could be? And traditionally, law enforcement's been trained on using behavior to identify if somebody's maybe involved or not involved in a crime. So it's been very heavily focused on if they answered questions that would be indicative of a guilty person. And what the research has shown us is that our accuracy at actually detecting deception based off behavior is about 54%. And so one of the major changes that I know we've been, we've been training on that parallels a lot of these other methods is investigative interviewing up front. So instead of a presumption of guilt and relying on behavior to indicate, is this a person that should be a, a primary you know, target of the investigation? It's using investigative interviewing techniques to obtain actionable intelligence, looking at information that we're gathering and weighing that against available evidence to determine, is this person a witness, a suspect, or completely exonerated? And instead of going in, as Jim mentioned, with a presumption of guilt that's then supported by behavior that looks a little off and our confirmation bias suggests we should continue to push push this same theory of the crime. So I think that's just to kind of kick it off. That's one major difference is how do we start the conversation or what's the, what's the investigation? So I, I think they differ on, on a couple of areas. Number one is that, you know, we are not trying to put bodies in seats. So we generally have an instructor to student ratio 
one to four. And with this, we are teaching the foundational aspects of the cognitive interview as the foundation of everything that we're, we're going to be getting them to get acclimated to for the entire week-long program. But the real focus is going to be on the foundational skills, and those are going to be on how to ask proper questions, how to uh, frame your questions so you're not asking leading questions or, or you're not spoon-feeding facts to the subject that you're trying to interview. Uh, also, we spend a great deal of time on how to develop rapport and trust with somebody. So, you know, the, the dynamic of what we're teaching here is all centered around what we know actually works out in the field, as opposed to what the practitioners think is best or what they have learned through, through experience or anecdotal accounts passed on to them from other detectives you know, or what they've seen on TV and in the movies. So we are only focusing on what we know has been validated out in the field. And, and this is very much so an information gathering approach where we are treating everybody the same way, whether it's a suspect, an eyewitness, or, or a victim. Everybody's being treated with respect. Everybody's given an opportunity to provide plausible explanations for why they may or may not have been involved. And it really is incumbent upon the interviewer to show that it is not their agenda that's important here in this interaction, but it's it's what the person they're interviewing feels comfortable talking about here and providing them that space to, to tell what they want or don't want to. Both of the uh, approaches differ insofar as we know with Reed that it's predominantly an accusatorial process. And on touching on Reed, I'd love to get your critique if you feel you would like to share on, on Reed. And are there other interrogation methods that are being widely used across the U.S.? Well, I'll start, let's say, a little bit with that because, you know, basically there's a lot of, of different instructors out there. In fact, you really don't have to have any qualifications to be an instructor. I mean, I've seen, I mean, people, all kinds of uh, people hang up shingles and say that, yes, I teach interrogation and whatnot. They call it different things. But it's basically the accusatory approach and is basically modeled on read. I mean, it's it may have different steps. It may have different names and all that. But I have really not seen any other accusatory school out there that that deviates much from the read approach of doing the interview first using a 15 or 20 minute interview where you use these behavioral analysis techniques and then you move on to the interrogation. And, you know, the one thing about Reed, their marketing is very good, is that this accusatory approach, they market it as a good way to, to increase your case closure rate. And it is because you bypass a lot of the real investigative work that real detectives are supposed to be doing. You just go out there, you determine this guy's your suspect to throw them in the interrogation room and you see how much flex they have and you close cases based on confessions. And, and not where with what Matt's talking about and Dave is talking about, you really need to have a foundation uh, for why you think this person may be a suspect. And that means doing detective work, doing your homework, doing your investigation, and then getting the information from them that will help further the investigation. Now, I was probably rambling on there for a while, if that makes sense, but that's, that's uh, yeah. I think that's that's perfect. And I think so kind of what Matt mentioned earlier, 
something as simple as how to ask questions better. And I, Matt could probably speak to this as well, but it's been incredible to me from training is but how difficult it is for some investigators to convert from what they're, what they're used to and not even ill-intended investigators, but almost just without the knowledge and the training of asking poor questions, leading questions, questions that contain elements of evidence contaminate any information that we get. But I, I think as Matt, Matt spoke to the cognitive interview is something that we also instruct on. There's the peace framework, which of course kind of got a, a stronghold in the UK and is, is slowly making a global presence. There's methods like the strategic use of evidence or the gradual release of evidence that are really focused on using the evidence that's available throughout the conversation strategically to gain more power in that evidence, right? You withhold information to try to uh, provide the subject the opportunity to tell their side of the story without maybe knowing all the evidence that you have. But I think all of these methods, and there's, there's several more, are based on the same framework that Matt spoke to earlier of developing rapport treating everybody in a humane, respectful way, regardless if it's a suspect, victim, or a witness, like Matt, like Matt suggested, and then focus more on information gathering than confession I think that's probably the, the simplest differentiator is what is the intent of the conversation? Is it to gain actionable intelligence or is it to go get a confession? I think we're, we're all moving towards the former versus the latter. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, do you ha have any thoughts you'd like to share on that one? Well, I think that Dave and Jim covered most of the ground there. The one thing I will say is that what we teach that is different than these programs that are teaching a confrontational, accusatorial type of curriculum is, is that we do not emphasize pushing towards a confession. We do not emphasize trying to identify people that are being deceptive at all. What we do emphasize is let's find out what actually happened in a manner that is comfortable, not only for the interviewer, but for the interviewee. And in doing so, we will get to the truth and we'll also then take a lot of the cognitive load off the interviewer of trying to identify people who are being deceptive. We'll take off a lot of load trying to push towards just getting a confession. And what we're finding is that we're getting a lot more, as Dave said earlier, we're getting a lot more actionable intelligence of actual information that we can use and we're also getting a lot more details than we ever did before, which is allowing us to, to get admissions, which is allowing us to identify statement evidence inconsistencies where the, the statements provided by a subject may not be consistent with the evidence we have. And then we're also getting a lot more confessions in the end, just by not even focusing on the confessions themselves, that we're providing a better atmosphere to conduct the interview. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think no discussion on this subject would be complete without taking a step back in to the DASI interrogation room. I think many people would agree it's a flagship depiction of Reed at its worst. And with the skipping of steps and the deviations of the officers, Reed was weaponized against a vulnerable juvenile. Do you think, having watched the interrogation, that there was any chance? the investigators could have gotten a voluntary and reliable statement. I'll throw that open. Interesting. That's a good question, Tracy. I, I think a proper interview method there, first of all, is to do a risk assessment of your subject. And there should have been an identification that, you know, Brendan, not only based off of age, but his IQ and his kind of uh, his emotional intelligence at the time, clearly needed some support in that conversation, I think would be step one, regardless if he is a a witness or a suspect or whatever role he's playing at the time uh, or what the investigators thought at the time. 
But number two, I think would be focused on, as Matt was suggesting about what they teach, is, a, is more of a cognitive interview, fact gathering, let's learn as much as we possibly can about an event versus really what happened in that interrogation is, is a narrative was already created and they just asked Brendan to, to agree to to kind of fill in, fill in the blank. So I think any conversation could be voluntary and reliable if it's done in this, in this framework. I don't know what information Brendan would have provided because I'm not sure what he would have actually known um, if they weren't fact feeding information to him. So I don't know what the results would have been, but that's more than likely the conversation that should have happened. Well, first off, Reed will tell you that that was not a Reed interrogation. In fact, they've already said that. And uh, they will also tell you that the only way that false confessions like that can occur is if you deviate from their program. But of course, their program also says that the number one rule is you don't use the read interrogation techniques on an innocent person. So, you know, that's kind of like a 22 right there. But one of the things is, is that the accusatory, the read approach, and, you know, Dave, you mentioned this, is a, um, is a one uh, size fits all approach. And one of the things that they did in the UK that Matt's doing, that Dave is doing, is recognizing that people who have intellectual or developmental disabilities, people, uh, juveniles, you know, people who are very vulnerable to being manipulated by uh, the accusatory approach, they are not so much they are not by the approaches that Dave and Matt are teaching because one of the first steps is to identify that this person is vulnerable to these interrogation techniques and the problematic tactics that might lead them to confess are not used over here. I just want to also mention that it's little known that the American with Disabilities Act actually requires that law enforcement modify their interrogation techniques to accommodate the intellectually and developmentally disabled. And we routinely violate that law over and over again, because like I said, our approach is a one size fits all. And that's something that's Matt and Dave are, are working hard to try to change. Yeah. Matt, have you seen the uh, DASI interrogation? You know, I, I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to listen to one of the investigators that was in that room and also the prosecutor who was pushing that charge against Brandon. And it was very, very telling that the investigator did not see anything wrong with that interview at all. And, and that to me is, is unfortunate, but at the same time, I, I can't fault the agency because we have not done a very good job of teaching departments how to vet out what is good training and what is not. And this is especially truthful with interview training. And they, they, what they see, Tracy, is they see an opportunity to check off a box that removes liability from an agency. If they can get training, no matter what type of training it is, they can check off that box that they gave their officers, their detectives, some training. What we have to do now is to educate them to take the next step to, to ask about the training. Is the training supported by research or, or not? And if it's not, is it something that we should be teaching? And, and this is going to be kind of the next evolution we're hoping now with this, this big change in law enforcement with these, this new legislation with what Dave is talking about in Illinois and, and possibly in New York, 
that uh, is, is very promising. But yeah, I, I found this video or this interview itself to be extremely disappointing. From the very beginning, they are setting up the stage for Brendan to, to look at this situation as if he's going to be shown leniency if, if he talks about the incident. And, and also the, the spoon feeding of facts. He, they are just asking lead, leading question after leading question the entire time. They're spoon feeding him too many facts about the investigation. We will never know if this really came from Brandon or if it came from the investigators. And that's what's challenging here is that we had an opportunity to get a very truthful account from him and we, we missed out on that, unfortunately. And Matt, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about the training, you know, I've been through, just like all of us have seen a lot of the different, I've been through the retraining a couple of times. I've been through all these other schools. And one of the things that they never really pay any attention to is how false confessions can happen. That they do happen to be, you know, that, that you have to be cognizant of them and aware of them. And in fact, they typically minimize. If they do mention that, they're going to minimize it. And so the attitude is that if I use these techniques, nobody's going to confess unless they did it because they're not being tortured and they're not mentally ill. So therefore, it doesn't matter if I feed them the information. It doesn't matter if I tell them this is what you did, right? Because if they're innocent, they're not going to agree with me. But if they're guilty, of course, they would. And so that's why I've, I've gotten this, this uh, I've had this conversation with other detectives who, uh, you know, basically this is why they don't think that there's a problem with showing crime scene photos or anything along that line. And that's just such a hard mountain to get over you know, for these folks right there. But yeah, I, like I said, when this stuff is taught, it, I've said it this way before, it's like teaching a doctor a medical procedure without testing them on it to see if they're proficient, without teaching them the side effects of it, you know, how to recognize it and how to deal with the side effects and just letting them go on out there, let's see, into the world. That's, that's exactly what you know, the Reed folks and other interrogation yeah. schools like that are doing. Would you think that it's a, a true statement that it's true of law enforcement agencies that interrogation training is often minimal, which can open the door to officers leaning into noble cause corruption and more unethical tactics? I would say it's it's lacking, especially from it, it depends on the rank of the a person in the department too, right? From a patrol officer who interacts with the community the most, probably has the least amount of interview training, right? And you're and it, I know it's changing, but in a typical academy, they're not getting much interview and interrogation training. And usually when you hit the detective ranks is when that happens. And what we're seeing, and I'd be curious, Matt, if you're feeling the same thing, we we could teach a detective academy a full week course. And then one of the concerns is when they go back into the field and they're partnered up with a detective who's been on the job for 20 years, is the supervisor, is the chief, is everybody from the top down also bought into uh, you know empirically based evolution of interrogation standards. So I don't I don't believe that investigators have an unethical approach to it. I think it's what Matt said earlier. Uh, they're relying on whatever training they were provided. So it comes down What's the agency? Are they funded? 
uh, to, to get this training? And then who are they training? And are those people being measured, monitored, and critiqued afterwards? That's at least what I've seen. But Matt, I'm not sure if you're seeing something similar with some of your programs. Yeah, no, we, we've seen, and, and this goes across the board from the local level all, all the way up to the federal entities that we are doing training with now. You know, one of the things that we've changed is we've gotten away from trying to do these transactional trainings where we're coming in and just training a small group. We're really focusing now on doing these transformational trainings where we will get to an agency and if they have not set up a, a structure that is going to promote success with this training long term, then we won't do the training. And and that's what we're really trying to do is we're trying to get away from doing these one-offs and really focus on, but we have a department, we have a command staff that is really interested in changing the way they conduct their investigations. They understand the value of an interview to completing not only successful investigations, but completing successful investigations that are maintaining the integrity of the investigation and closing them out quicker. And to do that, they have to do better interviews. And this is something we've known for a long time. And that is where we are really focusing on now is to try to get that to happen. But what Dave has just mentioned here is, is a real challenge is that they get out to the field. Yes, they are gonna do interviews that are gonna take longer than normal interviews would last. But my argument to that is, is that, well, they probably weren't doing interviews thoroughly to begin with, which is why they're taking longer now. And they will go back and do an interview a second, a third time when they could have done one thorough interview and gotten all the details and not have had to waste all the resources. So we are really focusing on getting the upper command staff with these agencies on board first before we start going anywhere. And then also we're working our way through the supervisors as well. We are inviting the supervisors to come out to the training so they know what their people are gonna be going through when they get out to the field so they can be supportive. And the final component of this is to teach them how to evaluate their interviews. And, and this is absolutely critical is that we've never had uh, any type of feedback loop out in the field. So we want them to be able to evaluate and provide critical feedback to one another out in the field, whether it's from their peers or whether it's from their supervisors. And, and part of that is understanding that the level that they should be looking at these interviews and the barometer should not be whether or not they got a confession. If that is the only way they are judging success for an interview, then they have failed. We want them to look at the amount of information, the validity of the information that they've gotten from these interviews, including whether or not they got admissions, whether or not they got statement evidence inconsistencies, or even confessions. So all these components are being integrated now to evaluate how they are conducting these interviews. Uh, we're, we're hoping that this will promote long-term success with these agencies long after we leave so that they can continue to conduct ethical investigations. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you touched on the fact that investigators will conduct a series of interviews because they're not getting it right in the first one or they're not getting what they're looking for in the first one. And we we saw that in the interrogations of Brendan Dassey that there were four interrogations in 48 hours. And over each of those interrogations, the fact feeding and you know the shaping of the narrative is embedded as the interrogations go on until it leads him to the March 1st statement. And they've done their job, so to speak. He has this narrative. 
his story is thoroughly contaminated and that is absolutely at odds with the seeking of the truth. James as a former detective and Matt as a current detective, I'll aim this question at you both. Have you experienced a moment while working a case where you saw the need for reform in the interrogation room? All the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, that's a, that was a constant back then. It's a constant now, even with the cases. In doing, in reviewing alleged wrongful conviction cases, I, um, it's a sad joke, but we often make the comment that, oh my God, it's like, all you have to do is take the names and the dates out and plug new ones in because the fact pattern is always the same. And when you see enough of these cases, you know, the fact pattern is the same. I mean, it's the same pitfalls that you fall into over and over and over again. And what Matt was you know, talking about is critical in that you need to get the supervisors involved because that's one of the uh, that's one of the steps that isn't there that allows these cases to get into court is that the supervisors don't know what they're looking at. They don't know what they're supervising. And so when the detective comes to them and says, hey, I got a confession, they slap them on the back and they look great job, but they don't review the work critically and they don't play the devil's advocate. So um, that's a huge problem right there. But, but yeah, I mean, I see the same thing over and over again. I'm sure Matt does. I'm sure both you guys do as well. Yeah, so I, I will say that everywhere I go, I, I'm seeing the same problems crop up. And a lot of it has to do because everybody's using the same curriculum that they've been using for the last 80 years. And the issues that, that really are scary are the lack of video recording, the interrogations, even at and this day and age is, is still very problematic. What you're seeing here where they are, are with the Brandon Dassey interview, where they are fine tuning him up over several interviews before they get to the one to win on his, his testimony to, to get a conviction is also very, very common. Oftentimes we'll see both of these tactics put together where they are not recording any of their prior interviews up until the last one where they get a confession. And that's the only record of we have of the entire incident. The introduction of, of case facts along with false evidence is, is something that is going on. Uh, and I, I'm excited to hear that they've taken steps forward with the legislation in Illinois to remove the idea of, of lying to, to juveniles. I'm, I'm hoping that this will carry over to adults. If we can take that out of the mix along with introducing false evidence, uh, I think that is the, the natural progression with this. But I also like what the Instance Project is doing now with potential legislation in New York to, to look at how we evaluate a confession right from the beginning of the trial, where you know, we look at eyewitness, uh, eyewitness evidence and we look at the reliability of that. How come we don't look at the reliability of confession in the same way before we introduce that as evidence? And, and that is something that I'm hoping will continue to move forward. Judges, from my limited experience, would be more concerned with the admissibility rather than reliability. Would you have any thoughts on that, Dave? Yes, and I think, and there's a lot of research with this with this as well, is 
not to take away from the credibility of a judge, of course, as I, I worshipped my grandfather earlier on the on the call here, but a judge's ability to determine whether a confession is true or false is also in question when it comes to when we look at, at data, when you just listen to a confession that's not fully recorded. And when you just listen to the, the confession at the end, or it's just a transcript of the resulting uh, end of the conclusion of the conversation, without knowing how we got there, without knowing how did a person give such an intricate, you know, intricate details of this confession, they must be guilty. Even a judge, a jury, uh, anybody would be would be fooled that this has to be an accurate confession. So I think the recording piece is what's paramount to evaluate both the admissibility and the reliability of the confession from a judge's perspective, um, and for both attorneys to have a, have a transparent argument about what was actually done in that room. So even this this law in Illinois, which of course is is great and I'm a fan of, means nothing if the interrogation is not recorded because we don't know what happened. So. I think that's the that's the foundation of this. I was actually thinking that, you know, how how effective is this if we don't see how it happens or we don't see how people are talking to each other or interacting with each other. Right. I think that's that's where the video is paramount and you know any of these confessions and I'm I'm sure I know Jim as he's consulted on a lot of cases. I've seen a lot of these now where the only thing that's recorded is the confession. You know, it's just not everything that led up to it and and you listen to some of these, if you listen to it backwards, and I've learned this from Jim actually, is kind of taking a timeline of the case and looking at a confession and trying to figure out where did that information come from? Where did the, you know, the subject knowing that the, they entered the house through the back door because the door was unlocked, how do they know that? Do they know that because the detective fed it to them? Is it because it was on the news? Is it because they showed a crime scene photo? Or was that independently you know, corroborated from, from the subject? And we don't know any of that if it's not recorded. And even with, again, a well-intended detective to just reflect back on what happened during the interrogation, they're going to misremember. What did I say? What didn't I say? I meant it one way versus the other. So video recording is really the foundation to make sure all of this, and as Matt talked about, even the evaluation afterwards. We can't critique ourselves if we don't, we can't go back and watch what we did. Matt and Dave, the training methods that you're, you've developed and you're teaching, are they gaining momentum within policing communities? I would say yes. I think, you know, we made an announcement a few years ago that we were, we were no longer teaching the, a confrontational technique. And we received overwhelming support from, from our, our clients and from new clients that I feel like police departments are looking for training. They want to do it the right way, not just command staff, but especially the, the newest officers and new detectives want to do things the right way and they want to learn and they're challenging, I think, differently than what was done even 20 years ago of just kind of accepting the, the old cop teaching the new cop what they've always done. I feel like there's a new school of thought. So we've see, received a lot of overwhelming support for people who want to feel more comfortable by developing rapport, being transparent. I like what Jim mentioned earlier, when you lie about evidence, for example, that's kind of the, the foundation of ruining trust between the community and law enforcement. So I, I feel like there's a lot of support for wanting to do things the right way. And there's a lot more academic inclusion in all of the training from de-escalation to use of force to interview and interrogation that I, I think it's becoming the standard and the norm. So I feel like it's gaining very well traction across the United States. But Matt, I'll let you speak to that as well. 
Yeah, so I, I would completely agree. You know, we always have a researcher with a practitioner when we teach our classes. And it's really exciting to see how these investigators start to gravitate towards the researcher and start to ask more questions about the research itself. And, and that's really what we want them to do. We want them to be skeptical and, and ask why a technique works or why it doesn't work. But you know, we're seeing over and over again that they want to learn how to do an ethical interview. They want to learn how to conduct an interview that they can get up in front of a jury and, and feel confident about and, and feel proud about the way they treated somebody, whether or not they got a confession. And that is kind of the new dynamic now is that we're seeing this emphasis on, on let's do things that are backed by the research and also that are ethical out in the field. And the next step really for us is, is to show the successes, right? To show the successes that they've had with these investigations so that they can see that these techniques will pay off in the long run. And, and that's where we're kind of getting to right now. But yes, the the investigators themselves are very excited about uh, getting away from what they've been taught before because it was actually creating a lot of stress for them. They didn't feel comfortable being confrontational. Well, yes, there's a certain group that do feel comfortable. The majority did not feel comfortable using those techniques. And what we're seeing with what we're teaching now is that everybody feels comfortable with the techniques because they are done in a professional and respectful manner. We are developing rapport. We are building trust. And the important part of that is we're starting to see people come back around to us after the investigations and reach out to provide information on other investigations, which is really what we want unsolicited, where people look to us as, as someone that they feel comfortable and can trust to provide that kind of information. And, and that's where this really pays off is when we're getting this intel coming back through without having to solicit it or having to arrest somebody to get the intel. I mean, it's such a more humane approach, isn't it? It's really rooted in a humanity to treat people of every echelon of society with that respect. I think that's so important. You know, something else that I think is a major influence has been the fact that there have been so many publicized wrongful convictions, uh, all these documentaries. Uh, that are out there, podcasts like yours, things along that line. And these younger detectives, I've noticed, are, are coming up and they're much more skeptical of us old farts, you know, <laughs> in the way that we would do things. And they, a lot of them want to be much more cautious uh, about how they're dealing with people and dealing with suspects because they don't want to get it wrong. And so that makes me very hopeful. And I think that the more that they see that this is possible and, and they see the videotapes of how it occurs, they're going to gravitate towards, you know, Matt and Dave and their programs right there themselves on their own. You know, there's sometimes the misconception that these techniques are soft techniques. And that is just the opposite, actually. These techniques are not soft. They are strategic techniques. They are strategic in the sense that we are teaching investigators how to actually prepare for an interview, how to plan for an interview instead of going in and just winging it and having a conversation. And it's strategic from the standpoint that we do want them to feel that they have room for flexibility and they don't have to follow a flowchart 
that they can have a conversation, they can explore what is important to someone about their values and beliefs and why that's important for developing an understanding of, of a motive. So the entire process is very strategic where we're trying to get them out of the habit of, of having this rigid conversation where they're pushing towards confrontation. And, and that's a very important aspect of what's going on now. Do you think that the DASI interrogation has had a, a positive impact across policing communities in terms of in, interrogation practices? I think yes. I think what Jim spoke to a few minutes ago is, I think overwhelmingly, I like what Matt also spoke to, of the, the investigators themselves may not have realized they did anything wrong, and they may stand by what they did based off of the training that they were given. And so I think one thing it's done is illustrate the need for training and the need for investigators that maybe were unaware of how lying about evidence, making promises, you know, that's an, that's an interrogation that the detectives don't really get angry or physically confrontational. So when you listen to it, they think that they're acting nice. You know, they make comments like, I'm your, almost like your father right now. I want to help you out. And they come across compassionate and empathetic but realizing that can be really dangerous. So I think number one is it, it opened up the eyes of everybody of this is the danger that can happen even if you think you're doing it the way you're supposed to do it. And on the other side, I think it's helped educate lay people that serve as jurors, that vote for politicians, that uh, are gonna become police officers, that are gonna become interview subjects at some point, that everybody now is a little more skeptical of I feel the the heaviest weighted evidence in a trial is often the confession and it's often the least scrutinized. And, and here we go, finally looking at bringing science into this practice. So I think, yeah, I think it's had a profound effect, um, his story on both law enforcement and on criminal justice system overall. So <laughs> I, this is a hard one for me, Tracy, because, you know, investigators, they don't know what they don't know. And it's very hard to say, at least from my viewpoint right now, whether they not they realize what was actually going on in that interview, and if they did, do they really think that it's it's unethical? And that is what's kind of concerning is, is that they they don't know. And to that point, I I've seen several new interview companies. Uh, sprout up over the last several years. I've been asked to go out and evaluate these curriculums. And, and what we're seeing from these companies is that they are saying they're teaching a science-based interview curriculum that is not confrontational. But what they're really doing is they're teaching a confrontational curriculum and just adding in parts of the science-based interview research to say it's science-based interviewing. And they're misleading departments to think that these are effective programs. Because of that, I think that they are only increasing the challenge that we're going to have out there for getting investigators to understand why what we're seeing in the Brendan Dassey interview is so problematic and that there are better options out there for conducting that interview. Absolutely. I think to date, you know, many agencies, I mean, as well documented, have created and they use unscientific and unreliable interrogation techniques that, as we've discussed, rely on lies and deception. Well, in reality, this is a finely tuned and well-orchestrated process to mislead. What do you think needs to happen 
across law enforcement regarding interrogation methods to limit in particular exposure to false and contaminated confessions? I'll keep my answer very short and sweet. I think video recording is the foundation of all of this. So we have transparency for training and for, for critique, the removal of the false evidence ploy, and also the removal of minimization techniques that remove consequences, uh, perceived consequences from a, from a subject. I think those are some key tactics that are used. And at the end of the day is focusing more on what Matt is speaking to is actual evidence-based, not just evidence-based, but also proven successful techniques that understanding you, st you can still get information and close a case using a method that's based off of science. And these two, these two worlds are merging together. So it, it's a complicated problem with a few simple fixes, I think actually mitigate a, a, huge, a huge portion of these false confessions that we're seeing. James, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, I have, besides what Dave has said, and now I echo his, um, his comments. I was asked uh, this, and I came up with an idea that we need to get the liability lawyers involved. These are the companies that represent police departments that are being sued for wrongful convictions or the insurance companies that are paying out all of these millions of dollars in these lawsuits. We need to get them involved with vetting training because if we sell them on the idea that if you get the, these people the right training, you're gonna minimize your agency's liability and the insurance payouts. I mean, that may have a very big effect on steering these agencies to the right training once they start getting hit in the pocketbook more and more. That, that was something I was exploring at one time. I think, I, I think Matt and I talked about that. Actually, I wrote a uh, part of a paper that, that was published up in Canada recently about that. Yeah, so I would just add to what Dave said. I, Tracy, I actually think that the, the video recording doesn't go far enough. I, I think that every interaction that subject has with someone from law enforcement needs to be recorded. My concern are the offline conversations that happen when they're not in the interview room. And this would really alleviate that. Along with that, David mentioned minimization tactics. I, I would say that any minimization tactic that promotes leniency should not be allowed. And, and that would be a, a huge step forward. Uh, undercover sources, I, I think is, is another area that's very problematic when we use an undercover source as testimony to bring somebody in for an interrogation, I think we have to do a better job of showing the reliability of that testimony undercover source. But yeah, in the end, getting the agents to understand that there is better training out there is, is gonna be a challenge as well. And where do they find that training? And that's, <laughs> that's still gonna be a challenge for a long time to come. Is it that with yourselves and your training that you take it to law enforcement or do they come looking for it? I think both um, depends on the agency. Sometimes there's, you know, there's requests out there from local, state and federal agencies that are looking for new training or looking for somebody for a, you know, an annual type 
training program and there's other departments that don't know what they don't know kind of like matt speaking to that go out there and, and either word of mouth or or some type of marketing so they realize what else is available i think unfortunately a lot of people just like anything have always been trained a certain way and so this they're just in this habitual process of going to the same class they've always sent their people to for the last you know several decades so it's it's educating them that there's other other uh, opportunities out there that are better because yeah, i do wonder whether you know law enforcement agencies are proactive in say off the back of something like brendan's interrogation i mean it's a iconic if that's the right word interrogation there there would be very few people who would not be aware of that interrogation so i i have wondered whether it has been instrumental in enforcement agencies i guess pursuing a different type of interrogation method i don't think his alone but i think the combination of so many examples that are out there i think that that has helped. And like I said, when you start getting the uh, city councils involved, the legislators and things like that, that's exactly how we got, uh, let's see, videotaping in D.C. forced on our throat. It wasn't because the agency realized that, that we had a problem or that this was a good practice. It's because the city council uh, wanted to be proactive and avoid some of the problems that had come up with you know, surrounding jurisdictions. And like we said many years later, it was the best thing that was that was ever shoved down our throats. But we fought it uh, tooth and nail at first. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Particularly as in New York City, there would have been the aftermath of the Central Park Five interrogations. But New York City, like every other city, has had tons of more examples since then. Yeah. So they're they're not as as widely publicized. Well, some are. I mean, you can go on YouTube, go on Netflix. I mean, there's documentaries all of all types out there about these cases. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any last thoughts that you would like to share? Is, is there something that you feel is important for people to know? If somebody is going to become a juror, what should they look for on viewing an interrogation? How do people discern reliability as a lay person? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you have two more hours. <laughs> <laughs> Finish on a question with a punch. <laughs> My only quick takeaway would be be skeptical. So don't take a confession at its, at its surface, right? Understand that just like any piece of evidence, it should be scrutinized as to the process in which that information was obtained. So from a juror's perspective, just because somebody says I did it, shouldn't be the end of the investigation. Let's figure out how did they get there and how did they, do, how did they arrive at that, uh, at that confession in the first place, if you're going to use that uh, in your, your deliberation. So don't, don't take a confession at face value. I would say that it's, it's equally important not only to look at how they got to the how they got to the confession. But I would add also, was there independent corroboration where the subject of the interview introduced information that hadn't been brought up before or made public at that time? But then also, what was done by the detectives after they received the confession to corroborate all the other details? And I think that's a very important point that gets lost here is that 
oftentimes as investigators, we just stop the investigation as soon as we get the confession. And that really should be this, the next step in the investigation is corroborating all those details to make sure that everything is aligned with what they said with the known information that we may have. Well, in addition to what Matt and Dave just said, I think that people have to realize that there is a major difference between admissibility and reliability. Judges, like you know, Matt was saying, they're trying to change this in New York, but judges do not rule on the reliability of a confession. They'll, and the admissibility of it is purely a legal issue. And like I've mentioned, <laughs> I actually said this to a judge once, he didn't like it too much, behind every single wrongful conviction that was the result of a false confession, there was a judge that ruled that confession to be admissible. So you just have to realize that just because the judge allows it to come in doesn't mean that it means a damn thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been incredible. Thank you for your insights. It's yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, Trace. Yeah, thanks for bringing us all together. Thank you. Well, take care. Sleep.